Hey everyone, it's Eves. Just wanted to let you know that you'll be hearing an episode from me and an episode from Tracy V. Wilson today. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's January 2nd. On this day in 1860, Urbain-Joseph Le Verrier announced the discovery of a new planet, and that planet was called Vulcan. Vulcan, however, was not a thing. Here's a quick recap. Throughout human history, astronomers and mathematicians have come up with a number of different models to explain how the solar system and the universe work, and some of them have been way more far-fetched than others. For example, Ptolemy thought the Earth was at the center of the universe and that each planet was in the celestial sphere, but the observed movement of the planets in the sky just did not line up with his whole model, so he had a whole weird system in which every planet was also orbiting in its own little smaller orbit. This was called an epicycle, so this epicycling planet was moving around in this sphere, that also didn't match up to the observable movement of the planets in the sky, so that's not even the whole explanation, but we're going to move on. By the 16th century, astronomers had figured out that the sun was at the center of the solar system, not the Earth, as Ptolemy had thought. And by the 19th century, mathematicians and astronomers had also figured out calculations that could predict the paths of the planet's orbit around the sun. But there were still some unanswered questions. Like, what was up with Mercury? Mercury, like all of the other planets, was moving in an elliptical orbit. That orbit's closest point to the sun is called the perihelion. And Mercury's perihelion moved just a little bit every time it orbited the sun. That's normal. All of the planets do this. Mercury's, though, wasn't doing it in exactly the way that was expected. Its perihelion wasn't shifting the correct amount. Another thing that had been worked out by this point was gravity. Isaac Newton's work on gravity had informed all this astronomy, and people had figured out how the planet's gravity affected the orbits of the planets around them. But even taking into consideration the gravitational pulls of the other planets in the solar system, Mercury was still behaving in a way that didn't quite make sense. So Le Verrier came up with a hypothesis that there was another planet somewhere near Mercury and that we just had not discovered it yet. One of the weird things about this hypothesis is that Mercury can be seen with the naked eye. So can Venus, which is the next planet out after Mercury between Mercury and Earth. So can other planets in the solar system. So the idea of an undiscovered planet so close to our planet and with other planets that you can see with the naked eye, uh, that just seemed a little suspicious. But Leverrier also had credentials. His math had been used to find the planet Neptune, And it turned out that an amateur astronomer had actually observed something, an unknown object of some sort, traveling in front of the sun. This guy's name was Edmund Modeste Lescarbot. He made this observation on March 26, 1859. 
when he heard about Leverrier's whole hypothesis of this other planet, he got in touch and sent him all of his notes. And then after reviewing all of those notes on January 2nd, 1860, Leverrier made the announcement. All kinds of accolades followed for these two men, and other people also reported seeing this little dot passing in front of the sun, but their observations didn't exactly line up with the predictable course of a planet. And then the dot disappeared. There was no dot to be seen anymore. So they thought, okay, this also is logical. It's just behind the sun, And some smart folks got together and calculated when it was going to be visible again. That answer was in March or April. But when March and April rolled around, this planet didn't appear. This led to a full-on hunt for Vulcan with all kinds of reports coming in of people seeing something passing in front of the sun. They weren't confirmed, though, and the scientific community started to conclude that maybe there was no Vulcan there. It was not a real planet Laverrier died in 1877, and it turned out that it wasn't another planet's gravity pulling on Mercury. It was that the sun is so massive that space-time and light bend around it. So when we observe Mercury from Earth, we're seeing it through all this distortion. We can thank Albert Einstein for that knowledge. It came about following his theory of general relativity in 1915. It is speculated that all those dots that people were observing passing in front of the sun were maybe just sunspots. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for the birth of an abolitionist. Hello, everyone. Eve's here. If you've been listening to the last several episodes, then you know that I've been speaking to you from the comfort of my own home. I'm still at home enjoying the beginning of the new year, but it's another day, and you know that means there's more history to tell. So let's get into another episode. The day was January 2nd, 1942. 33 members of a Nazi spy ring headed by Frederick, also known as Fritz Duquesne, were sentenced to serve time in prison. Before the U.S. entered World War II in December of 1941, Germany was already conducting espionage in the U.S. German-American spies had managed to gather important information from military and industrial sites. William Siebold was one of many people Nazi Germany enlisted to be spies on U.S. soil. Siebold was born in Germany and fought for his birth country in World War I. But after the war ended, he moved to the U.S. and became a citizen there. He worked in industrial and aircraft plants in the U.S. and South America. But when he took a trip to Germany to visit his family in 1939, the Nazis recruited him, through threats and intimidation, to work as a spy when he returned to the U.S. Concerned about the safety of his family in Germany, Siebold agreed and started his training to become a spy. He made it back to the U.S. in February of 1940, using the alias Harry Sawyer and the codename Tramp. Siebold seemed like an ideal recruit. But while he was in Germany, he told officials at the American consulate in Cologne that he was willing to cooperate with the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation. 
When he got back to New York City, he posed as a diesel engineering consultant. The FBI helped him set up a business office in Manhattan where he would meet with spies who would give him information to pass to the Gestapo, or Nazi Germany's secret police. The office was decked out with hidden microphones, cameras, and a two-way mirror. The FBI also built Siebold a shortwave radio transmitting station on Long Island. From there, FBI agents sent messages to Germany and received messages from the Nazis through that communication line. Germany was unaware that their messages were being monitored by U.S. agents. One spy who visited Siebold's Manhattan office was Frederick Joubert Duquesne, who ran a large German spy ring. Duquesne was a South African boar and a U.S. citizen with a long history of hating the British. As a German spy, Duquesne gathered information about U.S. and British shipping records and U.S. military technology. Over the course of several meetings, he revealed to Siebold plans for a type of bomb being made in the U.S., and he told Siebold how fires could be started in industrial plants. For 16 months, the FBI worked with Siebold to collect a ton of information on Nazi spies working in the U.S., Mexico, and South America. In June of 1941, the FBI rounded up a band of Nazi spies. 19 members of the spy ring pled guilty. That December, the remaining 14 members were found guilty at trial. And on January 2nd of the next year, all 33 people in the spy ring were sentenced to prison. Duquesne got 18 years in prison on espionage charges and a $2,000 fine for violating the Foreign Agents Registration Act. The act, passed in 1938, requires anyone who does political or advocacy work on behalf of foreign entities to disclose their relationship with the foreign entity and any relevant activities and finances. After the German spies were convicted, the U.S. government relocated Siebold to California and gave him a new identity. Diagnosed with manic depression, he was committed to Napa State Hospital in 1965. He died of a heart attack five years later. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have any burning questions, you can send them to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at TDIHC Podcast. And if you would prefer, you can send them to us via email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you here again same time tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.